0: Listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. We've started a series a few weeks ago on famous theologians or pastors in church history that have had an impact or an influence upon me both personally, spiritually, pastorally, theologically. And we looked at John Owen, the great Puritan, the last time. And this time around, we're going to look at another, somebody from, from Britain, actually Wales, the British Isles, who's had a tremendous impact upon my life, and that is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welshman. He was born in Cardiff, Wales in 1899. In 1921, he pursued a career as a doctor, very popular doctor in London. Uh, He was very good at his job. He was one of the most respected medical doctors in London during that time. But then he surrendered to God's call on his life to be a pastor. And so in 1927, he took his first pastorate in rural Wales in Aberavon, And he served there over a decade and had a very successful ministry in that context. In 1939, uh, he reluctantly accepted a position as an associate of G. Campbell Morgan. Now, G. Campbell Morgan was probably the most famous pastor in London. He was the pastor of Westminster Chapel. And so, this was a powerful church in London as far as prestige and influence. And in 1943, uh, Lloyd-Jones became the senior pastor of Westminster Chapel. And he served there until he retired in 1968. And Lloyd-Jones is really famous for his thorough, when I say thorough, thorough exposition of Scripture. Now, if there's a fault of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is that he may have gone too much into expository preaching. I mean, he spent, I think it was nine years, preaching verse by verse through the book of Romans. And so sometimes he would take just a sentence of a passage of Scripture And preach. And so uh, he was very famous for verse by verse exposition of the scriptures, very theological. He was also very vocal in his opposition to liberalism that was rising in especially the 50s and 60s in Britain, as well as the ecumenism. Ecumenism is the desire for all branches, all denominations, all churches to just let's throw theology aside and let's just all get along. And so he felt like there were a lot of compromises being made by his peers um, in England during that time. And he was fondly called the doctor. And in 1981, uh, he passed away. Uh, Currently, you can go to what's called the MLJ Trust, the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust, You can go there and get almost all of his sermons in electronic format on that website. You can actually listen to him preach. And so you can hear his powerful preaching. And I think almost all those sermons are free. You can just go there and download them or listen to them on that website. Now, there's a lot of books by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And most of the books are really his sermon manuscripts that are put into book form. But probably if you wanted to start to get a very good understanding of who the man is, um, Ian Murray, um, who was actually his associate at Westminster Chapel, has written a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones in two volumes. Now, there's a lot of different books that I've been influenced by. You can go into my study and on my shelf, I've got a lot of books by Martin Lloyd-Jones. His studies in the Sermon on the Mount are excellent He just goes verse by verse through Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've gleaned so much insight from that, just just reading that almost even devotionally. Uh, But when I preached through the Beatitudes a few years ago, he was very helpful. And I'm going to give you a lot of quotes from Lloyd-Jones. And one of the Beatitudes talks about blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is how he defines it, being poor in spirit. He says, quote, it means a complete absence of pride a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And the promise there is that God will fill us God will meet us in that condition God will save us when we admit our weakness when we come to him in total repentance I'm going to talk about this later on but he did a series of sermons on spiritual depression its causes and its cure probably one of his most famous sermon series and probably his most popular book if you're looking for a devotional guide uh, there's one called walking with God day by day It's actually daily devotions with quotes and teachings from Lloyd-Jones, 365-day devotion. Uh, One of the books that's been really, really deep and really, really rich is he's got an entire book on John 17, The High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It's called John 17, The Assurance of Salvation. And as I've been preaching through John, and we spent a long time in John 17 looking at the High Priestly Prayer, um, I gained a lot of insight from the the teaching of of Lloyd-Jones there. Um, You you can get his commentary on Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians. Um, Basically, again, they're just his expository, verse-by-verse sermons that have been put into book form. Um, He's written a book or There's the book called The Cross, God's Way of Salvation. Um, In the fall of 1963, uh, he preached a series of sermons on the cross. And so let me give you a quote from that book in one of his sermons about how the cross is an offense uh, to the natural man. He says this, You cannot remain neutral in the presence of the cross. It has always divided mankind, and it still does. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is either an offense to us or else it is the thing above everything else in which we glory. There can never be a more important question than this. What does the cross do to you? There are only two options, offense or glory. The cross is an offense to the pride of natural man because it says that not only are we sinners, not only are we equally sinners, all, but it tells us that we are all equally helpless. We can do nothing at all. It tells us that our righteousness is but as filthy rags powerful words in the day in which we live today when people are downplaying the substitutionary atonement of cross of the cross people don't want to talk about the blood of jesus because it's offensive people have taken crosses down in their churches because they don't want to be seen as being too offensive and and really the cross divides the cross offends the cross tells us that we're sinners in need of the substitutionary atonement of christ that we can't save ourselves that we're helpless to save ourselves that we need jesus as as our savior. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes what God did on the cross to his son in punishing our sins. He says, quote, "On the cross, God did not spare his son any of the punishment. He did not say, because he's my son, I will modify the punishment. I will hold back a little. I cannot do that to my own son. I cannot regard him as a sinner. I cannot smite him. I cannot strike him." He did not say that. He did everything he said he would do. He poured out all of his divine wrath upon sin, upon his own dearly beloved son. Again, we don't often want to talk about the wrath of God today, the the anger of God, that God has a righteous anger toward sin that we are sinners separated from a holy God, and that sin is offensive to a holy God, and God just can't let that sin go unchecked. He can't just brush it under the carpet. And so in the cross, God has punished sin in the person of Christ on our behalf. And then this is what else he says about the cross. He says, quote, There's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. I really like his wording there because he says contemplate the cross. How often do we think about the cross? I mean, we throw the verbiage around all the time. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. I mean, we as evangelical Christians, it's just part of parcel of our language that we talk about the cross. But when was the last time you contemplated the cross you thought deeply about the cross and all of the glories of the cross and all of what Christ did there and, and Lloyd Jones says when you stop and you really think about the cross and you contemplate the cross it's going to crush you to the ground in humiliation because you realize it's there that Christ died for you he also talks about this quote the whole glory of salvation is is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, yet God in His own love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. So there's a lot of teachings, if you I mean, just the breadth of his teaching and, and a lot of the topics and all the scriptures he dealt with, there's tons of material from from Dr. Lloyd Jones on the cross of salvation. Uh, one of my favorite sermons by him is from Romans 3, 21, where he, it's called Propitiation. Um, you can listen to it, where he gets really fiery when he talks about the wrath of God and what propitiation truly is, the whole idea that God punished sin in Jesus on the cross. Um, you can go by the Romans commentary and, and actually read it either way. Um, it's that sermon called Propitiation. I, I really enjoy that sermon. Now, let's talk about his, his book and his sermon series on spiritual depression um, he says this this is one of the themes of this sermon series the theme of the book he says quote christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom freedom and absence of joy there's no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And that's a powerful statement by Lloyd-Jones. Basically, what he's saying is the reason that so many people are not becoming Christians, are not attracted to Christianity, is because you have a lot of joyless Christians walking around that appear unhappy, that are sour, that are dour, that that just don't have the joy of the Lord as their strength. And so the key verse for his spiritual depression sermons is from Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I again shall praise Him, my salvation. Um, in the introductory sermon on spiritual depression, this series he preached in the early 60s, he really says that he has a great concern for God to bring revival, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, God to bring revival to the churches, and, and with the revival would come joyful christians who are passionate about jesus he basically says this a depressed christian is a contradiction in terms and he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel now that's a controversial statement because i mean i don't want to deal with clinical depression i'm not a doctor um I don't understand a lot of the the medical issues related to depression. I I do know that a lot of Christians do struggle with depression for whatever reason. There's a lot of Christians that don't have joy. There's a lot of Christians that are fearful. They're anxious. They have anxiety. They have stress. they, They don't fully understand, I don't think, the gospel. And so he makes a bold statement and says, really, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, that you really don't understand the gospel. Now, again, one of the things I need to tell you about, Lloyd-Jones pulls no punches. He's very, very strong in what he says. I mean, he's not going to pull any punches. He's he's not worrying about offending people. He's never going to dance around. He's never been accused of being politically correct. He's bold. He's brash. He's going to say what he means. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Lloyd-Jones is that because he was a medical doctor, That experience plays an important role in his teaching and his preaching and his sermons. Because usually what he does is that he before he gets to the the, the solution or the cure, he usually diagnoses the problem. And so in a lot of his sermons, he spends a lot of time diagnosing the problem. What's the problem? What's the issue? How does it manifest itself? Just like a doctor would ask a lot of diagnostic questions to determine what the sickness is or what the ailment is or what the disease is in a patient. And after you run a bunch of diagnostic tests and ask a lot of questions, then you're able to give the cure. You're able to give the the treatment. And that's the way he approaches a lot of issues of the Christian life in his sermons and his preaching. What's the problem? How do we diagnose it? How does it manifest itself? How, How serious is it? And then once he exposes that biblically, then he says, okay, here's the cures. Here's the answer. Here's how the Bible answers these. And so that's a lot of what he does in this spiritual depression um, sermon series. And so it's really um, one of the things that's really become popular from the spiritual depression sermons is this whole idea of preaching the gospel to yourself Now, I know Jerry Bridges, and we'll probably have a podcast on Jerry Bridges uh, also as far as one who's heavily influenced me, Uh, but Jerry Bridges really kind of popularized the term preach the gospel to yourself. I know Tim Keller has used that terminology. It's it's become so popular now, this whole idea of preaching the gospel to yourself, but it really, I think, stems, I mean, it comes from the Puritans, but Martin Lloyd-Jones really captured it in the spiritual depression sermon series. He says this, quote, I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And how do you talk to yourself? What does he mean by that? He says, really, the way you talk to yourself as opposed to listening to yourself is you preach the gospel to yourself. You talk to yourself about the glories of the cross, the glories of the gospel, your identity in Christ, who you are in Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these things that the gospel does for us, we're to daily be reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Um, He basically says this, quote, you must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself and say to yourself, hope in God And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. So basically his antidote to depression, to joyless Christianity, to anxieties to say, listen, you can listen to yourself all day long. You can listen to all of the things that are going wrong. You can listen to all the voices that are coming against you. You can listen to the condemnations from the devil. And all those things are just going to sink you deeper into joyless Christianity. What you need to do is say, listen, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself daily who God is, what God has promised to you, how God has pledged himself in covenant faithfulness to you, who you are in Christ that you are chosen, that you are adopted, that you have been redeemed, that you do stand accepted in Christ through justification. You do have the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. You do have the power of the Holy Spirit. You do have a home in heaven. You do have an eternal inheritance. All of these things that the gospel of Christ gives to us and all spiritual blessings, we need to remind ourselves of those daily. And as you begin to remind yourself and preach yourself to the gospel to yourself daily, then you begin to realize your identity in Christ who God is, and that will give you the joy of the Lord as your strength. And so spiritual depression, those sermon series, that book, I would probably say if there's one book that probably would be the most popular, the one that probably hits people where they are emotionally and spiritually, it would be his book on spiritual depression. And again, these are just sermon manuscripts, either the sermons that he preached on those topics. Uh, One of the things he says about prayer that I really like, he says this about prayer. Quote, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. That's a wonderful quote on prayer the highest activity of, of the human soul. We think about all the things that we can do in church life and your personal life. And, and we as American evangelical Christians are very, very busy. We're very task-oriented We want to get into programs and projects and we want to do, do, do and give me the next program, give me the next Bible study, give me the next video series. Uh, What are all these things that we can do and what conference can I go to and what ministry can I get involved in and and this and that and we're frantically moving about to this thing and the next and oftentimes we think those are the greatest things we can be doing. That's where we can be expending most of our energy and doing, 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 doing. And I'm not putting down ministry obviously. We need to do evangelism. We need to do missions. We need to do discipleship. As a church, we need to be faithful to the mission God has called us to do. And we need to be doing those things. But before we do anything, the highest activity is prayer. And I think that's one of the missing ingredients in a lot of churches is prayer. You know, that's a non-negotiable in my ministry as pastor here to Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I told the church 13 years ago when I came, I said, whether it's myself and my wife, or there's 50 people there, or there's five people there, it is a non-negotiable that we will have corporate prayer meeting once a week as a church to gather and pray for revival, pray for spiritual awakening, pray for the mission of the church, pray for other people. We are going to be a praying church. And we have prayer meeting every Sunday night. And there is a faithful group of people that meet. And it's probably one of the sweetest times of fellowship and prayer and joy that I have as a pastor. Because here's, here's what happens. As a pastor, you preach your heart out on Sunday morning. You give yourself to your flock by preaching. And you're spent By the time noon comes around. And then you usually go out to eat or you go home or whatever. And um, in in our family, I usually take a nap on Sunday afternoon. But then I come back on the Lord's Day evening on Sunday night. We gather and we spend an hour in prayer. And I am so encouraged by that time. I'm encouraged to hear other people praying. I'm encouraged to hear about what God is doing in the life of others in our church. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for our ministry partners. We pray for lost people by name. We pray for specific ministries in the church. We pray for people that are sick and hurting. And it's just a joy for me. I get charged up on Sunday night. I go home encouraged, finishing off the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, being in corporate prayer prayer with my church family. And it's a great encouragement to me. And and so it is the highest activity of the human soul. Now, prayer is hard work. I've told my congregation this before. Hey, you know, if we were to have a guy come in and preach on end times prophecy or we were to have a Christian concert or we were going to have, you know, some type of seminar on marriage or parenting, we'd have a lot of people show up and there's nothing against those things. But hey, we're going to spend an hour in prayer at the church on our knees, it's like crickets chirping because it's not fancy, it's not exciting, it's not glamorous. It's, it, prayer requires energy, it requires focus, it requires dependence. Sometimes there's awkwardness. And a lot of people don't want to be put in that situation. But Lloyd-Jones says the greatest and highest privilege, man is at his greatest and highest when he's on his knees before God in prayer. Now, one of the things that's really, really helped me in understanding revival has been the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. In 1959, he did a sermon series on revival, and it was to mark the 100-year anniversary of the Welsh revival of 1859. And so that's been put into a book, and these are just sermons on revival, and I've learned so much About And I've kind of been a student of revival. I mean, I've read about the great, even back in seminary and before seminary, even back like in the the mid-90s, I've always been interested in revival, whether it was the Welsh revival of the early 1900s, whether it was the uh, New York City revival in the mid-1800s, whether it was the first great awakening, the Protestant Reformation, what's been going on in China, um, I, I was heavily influenced by my former pastor, uh, Dr. Ron Clement, when I was in Colorado Springs. He was heavily into studying revival and the history of revival. And so I've always just kind of been interested in how God has moved in revival and spiritual awakening um, in, in specific points in history. And so back about probably 12, 13 years ago when I first started reading the book on revival by martin lloyd jones i I was so encouraged just his insights on revival let me give you some of his quotes he says quote you see when man does something he likes to do it in big cities does he not he does it in a big way and he feels that it's essential to his success when god sent his son into this world he was not born in jerusalem but bethlehem the very least of the cities in judah it is in bethlehem the little villages that people have never heard of, that the mighty things often happen. And this is a wonderful thing. The next revival may break out in a little hamlet that you and I have never heard of. We people in these big cities of ours may be passed by and God may do this mighty thing in some unknown little place with a small group of people. That can happen in revival. That's a great encouragement to me and maybe to many of my listeners who aren't in big urban areas. You're not part of a powerful megachurch. You're not perceived as being powerful by the culture. You're in some no-name outpost that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, that's where I'm at. Nobody's ever heard of Sterling, Colorado. I mean, we're basically 125 miles northeast of Denver. And we're close to the Nebraska border. We're we're rural Colorado. We're a town of about 15,000 people. There's not a lot of um, activity in Sterling that the world would look at and say, hey, that's the hotbed of culture and that's a cosmopolitan area where great things are happening. But Lloyd-Jones' assessment or assertion is that that's probably in these small, tucked, out-of-the-way places that's not on the world's radar, that that's where God is most prone to maybe show up in revival, among a small group of people who are faithfully praying. Now, God is sovereign. One thing about revival is you can't program it, you can't plan it, you can't predict it. God alone sovereignly comes in power and blows through the power of the Holy Spirit upon a people and pours out revival. So God can do it any way He wants to. But oftentimes it's encouraging to see that it's not just the mega churches. It's not just the big name pastors. It's not the big name ministries where God may bring revival. He may. But I believe that even in small places in out of the way places in no name places with no name pastors who are faithful to preach God's word week by week, to teach God's people, to love God's people, to pray like crazy. You know, when I came to this church, I said, there's, there's four things I'm going to do as your pastor. Number one, I'm going to preach expository sermons faithfully to the text. Number two, I'm going to pray like crazy and lead our church to pray like crazy. Number three, I'm going to love you as your pastor, as your shepherd. And number three, we're going to seek the face of the Lord on how to reach our neighborhood, how to reach our our world for Christ. That's basically what I'm here to do. And so if God's so pleased to bring revival, that would be a wonderful experience, especially in these no name, out of the, you know, backside of nowhere places. He says this quote, I have the profound conviction that until men and women in the Christian church, I'm not talking about non believers, are humbled and abased and fall on the earth before this holy and righteous, yes, to use the term of Jonathan Edwards, angry God, I see no hope of revival. It is our arrogance, it is our pride, it is our tendency to set ourselves up and define God after our own image instead of falling and prostrating ourselves before Him. It is that which stands between us and these mighty blessings of revival. That's a word to the church today. Until we are humbled, before we fall on the face, on our faces before this holy God, Admit our cluelessness, admit our wretchedness, admit our weakness. I mean, there are so many things we can do in our own power as Christians, and we can be pretty successful at it. I mean, I've been in ministry over 25 years. I know how churches work. I know what draws a crowd you can get comfortable in doing ministry and you can just go on cruise control and you can pull off some pretty stellar things just because you, you've been doing it so long. And I'm afraid in a lot of churches and a lot of Christians, we operate that way. We've done it this way before. We know how to do it. We've got our plans. We've got our mission. We've got our, our personalities. We've got all the things that, that we know how to do. We can pull it off on our own power. We're competent. We're, 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 we're all together. We're adequate. Uh, we're all that. We know what we need to do. And so we charge out and we do it. And God may bless. And oftentimes in, in spite of our weakness and in spite of our arrogance, he does bless. Because he's a gracious God. But I wonder how much more God would bless if we were more humble, if we were more dependent, if we just fell before our faces, before God and said, God, I'm clueless here. I'm weak here. We don't know what to do. We've done these things before in our flesh and we don't want the arm of flesh. We don't want our power to be on display. I mean, I was teaching last night uh, on our Wednesday night series on the book of Judges and we were looking at the story of Gideon. And in chapter uh, seven, when they're going to go against the Midianite army, you know, there starts out with 32,000 troops. Then it goes down to to 22,000 and God says that's way, I mean it goes down to 10,000 and God says that's way too many, get down to 300 and so you know the story of Gideon the 300 men, they blow the trumpets they smash the jars and it's this great story of how God used a small army to bring about victory but there's a very interesting thing that God says in verse 2 he says the reason I'm doing this is so you won't say my own power has done this God is saying the reason I'm going to winnow you down, I'm going to refine you down to 300 is so you won't be so prideful in what you can accomplish. It will only be by the power of God. And I wonder if we as churches, we as ministries, we as individual Christians are so humbled, so dependent, so weak that we would never say, you know what, look what we can do. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, obviously, I am a preacher. I'm an expository preacher. I have my doctorate in preaching. I wrote a thesis on preaching. And so one of the famous books by Martin Lloyd-Jones is on preaching. In 1969, after he had retired, he gave a series of lectures at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia that stressed the primacy of preaching in the life of the church. And then in 1972, these lectures were published in book form as preaching and preachers and then later on it was updated in 1981 i think so preaching and preachers is one of the consummate preaching books that almost every uh, preaching student has to read and i will tell you that book is pretty opinionated he's got some very strong views on preaching but he says some wonderful things about the role of preaching in the life of the church I mean, in this very first paragraph, he says, quote, The most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. It is the greatest and most urgent need in the church. It is obviously the greatest need of the world also. That's a powerful statement. The greatest need in the church, the greatest need in the world, the greatest thing that we need is true preaching. And then he goes on to explain what true preaching is. Now, I agree with him. I agree with him. There's a famine of preaching the Word of God in our land today. Now, I don't want to stand here and say I'm an expert on what's going on across the country because I'm not in every church. I don't see the landscape. I don't hear what's going on out there because I'm in my own little bubble here in northeastern Colorado and I preach here every Sunday. But I do have friends and I do have people and I do hear things and, I, and, and people do come to our church. And, and what the refrain I hear over and over again is that we're just not getting sound, biblical, expository, powerful, passionate preaching in our churches. And so in a few weeks, on February 17th, I'm going to be leading an expository preaching conference in our area called Feed the Flock. It's geared towards bivocational pastors. It's geared towards lay ministers. It's geared towards non-seminary trained pastors. Um, Out here in northeastern Colorado, we have a lot of bivocational pastors that are pastoring in rural churches. And, it, and sometimes when these guys have to go on vacation, they can't find anybody in their church to fill the pulpit. And so since I've you know, got a lot of years of experience in preaching, I've got a degree in preaching, um, I just want to encourage and bless these men uh, that come to this conference to help you know, Iron Sharpens Iron to, to talk about how we can uh, do a better job in preaching. And so basically one of the things that he talks about, that's his famous quote is what is preaching? Logic on fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who's on fire. And logic on fire, actually, they've been made this into a biography movie. You can actually go get the movie on the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's called Logic on Fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who's on fire. I love that definition. Because what it does is it combines the the truth of God's word, his theology, the text, being tethered to the text. But it also talks about the man. You you don't preach in a vacuum. You you know, on Sunday mornings, I could just have everybody show up and I could pass out my sermon manuscript. And for the next 30 minutes, we could just be silent and let everybody read what I'm going to preach. Now, content wise, everybody would be getting the same thing on my manuscript. And we could all read the scriptures. But God has ordained a man to stand before God's people and to proclaim theology. And that man needs to be on fire. He needs to be on fire because he spent time in the Word. He spent time in prayer. The Word has so saturated him that when he gets up to preach, he can't contain himself. He has been impacted by God and he wants to motivate and encourage and challenge the people. He's a man on fire. He also defines the chief end of preaching as it's to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. I wonder if that's the aim of our preaching. Sometimes we think, as pastors, that our goal of preaching is to dispense information. If I just give people information, if we go verse by verse and we give people the information, that's preaching. Not really, that's lecturing, that's teaching. That's dispensing information, which is good. That needs to be part of preaching. That's a big part of preaching, but that's not the sum total of preaching. Ultimately, when you preach a message, you are to be so faithful to the text in a way that you give men and women a sense of God and His presence in that, in the preaching moment. As people are getting caught up in the text, they're also being caught up that God is here. God is speaking to us through the preached word he also talks about um, the whole idea of of unction the holy spirit anointing a preacher he calls it the unction of preaching um, which you know our friend dr art has written a book spirit empowered preaching uh, there's a lot of you know different ways you can talk about it the anointing the empowering the unction i think um george whitfield called it the thunder and lightning uh, the smile of god it's that that moment in time when a pastor stands up to preach that he's filled with the power of the holy spirit where he has an overwhelming sense of boldness an overwhelming sense of clarity And he speaks with authority that comes directly from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And it's something that every preacher needs to depend upon. He says this, quote, Without believing in and knowing something of the power of the Spirit, preaching is a heartbreaking task. I certainly could not go on for another day but for this. If I felt that it was all left to us and our learning and our scholarship and our organizations... I would be of all men the most miserable and hopeless. It's a good word to us as preachers. When you stand in that pulpit, if you think it's all up to you, how smart you are, how much sermon prep you've done, how many commentaries you've consulted, how well the worship band did before you got up, how good your illustrations are, how good your flow is, do you have a good conclusion, do you have good points? All those things are important in a worship service. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. But if that's all we relied upon was our learning, our delivery, our preparation, Lloyd-Jones says, preaching would be the most heartbreaking task. I would be the most miserable and most hopeless man in the world. Because what happens in preaching? You Think about it. When you, as a pastor, and if you're a pastor listening to this podcast, you stand and you preach, you are, in a sense, being the mouthpiece for God to a congregation that needs to hear a word from God. And you are faithful to the text. You preach the text. You spend time in preparation for that text. You clearly articulate the meaning of the text. You bring in good illustrations to illustrate the text. You shepherd the people through your pastoral ministry in that text. But there's one thing you can't do. You cannot bring conviction of sin. You cannot bring regeneration to dead sinners. And you cannot bring repentance and change and transformation. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So you as a preacher are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to empower your proclamation, and the congregation is totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit because if anybody's going to get saved in that worship service under your preaching, the Holy Spirit's got to come in power and regenerate a lost soul. He's got to open blind eyes. He's got to blow life into them. He's got to come and make them alive, cause them to be born again. He can. You cannot do that as a preacher. On your best day, with your best illustrations, with your best um, organization, with your best efforts, you cannot produce the spiritual change that only the Holy Spirit can do. In the life of lost people, bringing them to salvation through regeneration, and in the life of saved people, those that are already saved, you can't bring that deeply um, spiritual motivation, encouragement, challenge, change that only the Holy Spirit can bring to His people. So you are totally dependent upon the unction or the power of the Holy Spirit. And I've learned a lot from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones about that. So as I bring this to a close, I can't tell you the influence that Lloyd-Jones has had on my life, my ministry, my personal understanding of many topics. I mean, I've learned so much about revival by reading Lloyd-Jones. I've learned so much about preaching from lloyd jones i've learned so much about just the the human heart the condition of the soul from his whole diagnosing the problem as a doctor the whole idea of the cross i've learned so much from lloyd jones and i encourage you go to the martin lloyd jones trust website and listen to some of his sermons it's very interesting in his sermons he doesn't preach like we preach today. Now, now let me just kind of tell you, if, you if, you've, if you've listened to my preaching, normally what I do in my sermons is I will start out with an engaging introduction to try to hook the people, to try to surface the need, uh, to try to relate a story or an illustration or some type of introduction that's going to grab the attention of the people to illustrate what I'm going to be talking about. Now, Lloyd-Jones does not do that. He just says, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then he just starts preaching. And at first, if you've never heard him, you're like, okay, this is kind of boring. This is, he's just kind of starting, and, and he's just kind of expositing. But there's something powerful. If you listen to him preach, and I encourage you to listen to him, not just read it. You can get some of this from the reading. But if you listen to him, there's times where you're on the edge of your seat with goosebumps because God is using this man to bring the word in power. And it started out like, you know, this is going to be kind of boring. And by the end of the sermon, you're melted. You're you're wilted. You're you're in tears. You're under strong conviction because God had used him. And all he did was he faithfully exposited the text, and and God used him in a very powerful way. So I encourage you to go listen to his sermons. Get some of his books. If you're a pastor listening to this, you need to have Lloyd-Jones in your personal library. Um, If not just for personal devotion, but also just to consult for for commentary and for some ideas. And and please read his books on revival. I think every pastor should pray for revival and spiritual awakening. And there's so much weird stuff out there in our world today from the extreme word faith, the extreme movements that are out there, that, that, that in our culture today you get a very imbalanced view of what really revival and spiritual awakening is. And I think he centers, he centers that back on what a biblical understanding of that is. And so I really have um, benefited greatly from the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he is one of the men of God that have heavily influenced my understanding of preaching, my understanding of the Christian life, my understanding of prayer and revival and the gospel. And it's just indispensable how God has used him um, in my life uh, to shape who I am. And so I hope that you have an appreciation of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as well. Well, I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm so thankful for the listeners that listen. Um, To be honest with you, I I don't know. I I don't keep track of stats. I don't know who all is listening to me. I don't know where you're listening to me. I just know I receive emails. I receive encouragement. And I really appreciate that. And and I'm not doing this podcast as a way to kind of make myself popular. I just, God has put a burden on me to preach truth to declare truth, to be an encouragement, uh, to be a voice in the wilderness that would bring uh, some insight into helping people understand Christianity uh, just from this little part of Colorado, this little part of the world. And so uh, whoever my listeners are, I really do appreciate you. And maybe one of these days uh, we'll meet. And so you could give us a review on iTunes. You can share this podcast on Facebook, on Twitter. You can go to seancole.net to get more information. You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. There's many ways that you can get connected to this ministry. And so until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus?